going to continue going through the catechisms. Uh, the catechism today is question 21. Uh, I will read the, uh, read the question, and then together we will recite the answer. Question 21, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. So May is, uh, is Foster Care Awareness Month. And uh, obviously these months, you know, they're not something that's prescribed by God, but I think they can serve as good reminders uh, of things that may not come across our radar in normal everyday life. And uh, I, I do, I'm going to talk for a minute about it, and then we'll, um, we'll pray for all those involved in the foster care system. And uh, I want to challenge many of you to consider foster care. Um, maybe you're a family with young kids, I challenge you to consider foster care. Maybe you're a little older, your kids are out of the house and you're an empty nester now. I challenge you to consider foster care. Um, college students, when you think about your vision for your future with a family, with a spouse, maybe with kids, uh, I challenge you to incorporate into that vision uh, considering foster care. And I understand why we can be resistant to this. Uh, it's, it's messy. Um, it's pretty much always complex. Uh, it can be heartbreaking. There's so much unknown. Um, maybe you're scared of messing something up in your home that's good. Um, there's so often trauma associated with these children. And, and who wants to invite trauma into their life and home? I, I, I get it. I get why in the nearly 10 years of our church's history, we have had so few families involved with foster care. I get it. But we must remember that we have the luxury of deciding whether we invite this difficult situation into our life. Like a light switch, we get to decide whether we turn it on or off. And these children, they don't get that choice. Uh, this is their life. They didn't choose this. They are made to long for what you long for, and they long for what your kids long for. And Psalm 139 reminds us that every single child is fearfully and wonderfully made by our God. God formed them together in their mother's womb. God knitted them together specifically and individually. And these children in foster care are image bearers of our Lord. And if we want to fight for the life and dignity and value and purpose of all children, then we saints, we Redeemer Church, ought to consider being involved in foster care. We often talk about abortion and how we're fighting for the most vulnerable who don't have a voice, and that's true, and we must, we must fight for them. Every child in the womb matters, but there are also many children, many one-year-olds and two-year-olds and 13-year-olds and 15-year-olds with audible voices and real tears and we Christians have to be on the front lines fighting for them as well, contending for the kingdom in this gap that these children would one day know the God in whose image they bear. And, I, and what a privilege if there's a situation where you've got a mom or a dad or a grandmom who for whatever reason isn't in the best spot right now to parent a child. What a privilege to stand in that gap, to love that child or children until that parent or that family member 
is able to start raising that child again. What a privilege. Such a Christ-like opportunity to serve and to make others more important than yourself. And so I really challenge you to consider this. I challenge you to become, uh, to, to think how uh, you could become involved in foster care or to consider doing it. Um, it really challenges us as a church to do that. So I'm going to pray uh, for the Really, the, the, the three main pillars in, in foster care, you have, a, you have children, uh, you have a child, or children, um, you have these parents uh, that are unable right now, for whatever reason, to, uh, to be with their children, and then also for uh, the foster families in our community and county. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we, Lord, it, it's amazing to read Psalm 139, and just see the specificity of every human being. God, we see this in Genesis 1, that man was made in your image. And now, Lord, we get to marvel at at the kids in our midst. Lord, we get to marvel at your handiwork, at how you make every single child so uh, specifically beautiful. And Lord, we know that many of uh, your image bearers, Lord, are in the foster care system. And I pray for them. I pray that you would put them in places where they can be loved and known and safe and protected and cared for. I pray that you would provide for their needs, all of them. I pray that you would just crisscross their path, God, with people who know you that can point them to you. I pray for these precious children, all of them, from the newborns to the, the 18-year-olds that have gone their, their whole life, maybe without a, a, a stable living situation. I just pray that you would help them. Lord, I pray for these uh, parents, Lord, that we, we probably can't even fathom, Lord, their anguish and hurt to be separated from their children. I pray that you would help them, help them uh, get their lives in order in such a way and meet the requirements, Lord, that they can, they can parent again and they can love their children as you have designed them to do. I pray that you would help them, help them get the, the help they need. I pray that we as a church and we as Christians would come alongside these parents, God, to help them. And lastly, I pray for our uh, foster parent community um, in our town and in, uh, even in our church, families like the Braves. Lord, I pray that you would help them. Help them, give them endurance, give them strength, provide for them what they need. Lord, help us be a community that, that, uh, that champions this that lifts these people up for the sacrifices that they, they make every day. And I just pray that you would help them. I pray that you would raise up more of them in our midst. Lord, that we would be a church that is, that is running to these crisis situations to help. And we wouldn't just open up our, our, our pocketbooks, God, that we would open up our homes, our bedrooms, our lives in every way to stand in a gap, Lord, a, a a, a gap where we can uh, we can proclaim the kingdom and, and proclaim the dignity of every human being. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading today will come from Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 34. Mark 12, 28 to 34. This is the word of God. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thank you, Brian, and thank you, Colton, for that uh, right and good challenge. Uh, as many of you guys know, uh, several years ago, I worked for a campus ministry, a ministry that was focused heavily on evangelism, uh, and they were really good at teaching us how to plan and how to set goals and measure those goals uh, and, and evaluate what came of what we did. Um, and it's a little tricky to, to measure success in evangelism, uh, but this ministry was really good because they had good theology, and they, and they believed, uh, as the Bible teaches, that conversion is ultimately up to God. And so they were careful to not, to not put a burden on us that's clearly on, on God, but they did want to put uh, some, some uh, success crit- criteria in place of, of how to know whether we were doing what we ought to do and should do and all that. And so, so they did measure uh, how much we shared the gospel, how much we shared it in groups and individually and, and all that stuff. And so every month or at least every semester, I was supposed to uh, go to this website, click on the link that said success criteria and enter what we called our stats. I hated doing it. Um, and to be honest, I, I didn't even, <laughs> I kind of didn't do it. Um, I, I kind of did. I, about every month or so or every semester, I would just kind of talk to our team and take an, make an educated guess. And the reason I did that is part of just my, my weakness, my fallen nature, is I'm just prone to legalism. And I think a lot of people are too. And uh, man, whenever we start to measure success and results and all that, we just tend to, to go too far in that. So, so I flinched because I knew my tendency towards legalism. I was also very happy to share the gospel and, and very much wanted to see non-Christians hear the gospel and convert and all that. And I would get nervous sometimes about kind of polluting what I felt to be pure motives with these other motives that kind of could seem, seem a bit off. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, we'd have the other staff people would be around and we'd get together. And, you know, usually when you have people in a company or organization together, you complain about something. There's always something to complain about. And this would be one of those things that we would complain about. But then we'd also say that, you know, it's, it's good that we have this. And, and, um, and the other thing we would say is that we, we'll find something to, to be our success criteria. You know, we'll, it might be the, the size of the, of the crowd that comes to our weekly meetings, or it could be, you know, how much money we have coming in or something neat that happened. But all of us operate this way. And so we, we would just at least say, at least that we're owning that there's some way we, we, we measure ourselves and evaluate ourselves, and here's the best way we think we can, we can do it. But anyway, but even beyond being with an organization or a ministry or whatever, we all operate in this su- like success criteria category. In some way, you, you look at your life and you feel like things are going well or things are going poorly. 
somehow, some way. And, and so anyway, we, we would do well to consider what is it that makes me look at my life and, and, and feel like, yeah, things are going really well or things are going really poorly. And, and generally, we're, we're happy when, when we have something we want to see happen and we work towards it and it's fulfilled. And we're sad when the opposite happens, when we, when we don't see those things fulfilled. So when we have ideas for success, whether we realize it or, or not, we're happy or, or, or sad based on those uh, goals being achieved. So it's important for us to, to set good goals because like this organization said, like you're going to have criteria for success anyway. You might as well give some thought to it. And so here's what I want to suggest today is that we, we have success criteria, all of us. I would, I would guess that most of us haven't really articulated or thought it down, thought about it or written it down, but we have ways that we operate and say, yes, I am doing well. I'm, I'm focused on the right things and giving it the right energy. We usually go to default systems that aren't usually right. And so like if, if I were to say, for me, a successful week for Kevin Shoemaker is this, watching as many shows as I can. There's a lot of good stuff out there. If I don't work hard, I'm going to miss some good shows. Then you would say, Kevin, you need to work on that. You got some bad goals. What about this? What if I said, you know what? Here's my goal in life. I want Redeemer Church to be massive. I want to be the biggest church in the state of Mississippi. Then you would think, hmm, better. (laughs) But, you know, is this about the gospel and Jesus or is this about Kevin? And his ego. Or how about this? How about I said, here's my goal in life. I want my kids to be as happy as they possibly can be. Like, okay, well, that's, that's good because it's kind of getting outside of you. I wonder what kind of burden that's going to put on your children to know that your emotional well-being is based on their happiness or whatever it might be. But look, here's the things, we, or it might be kind of some, some kind of personal success, making money or being respected in your field and your work. I'm just saying we have these categories, this criteria for success that we operate under, and we often don't identify it or think about it. And when we do that, our default settings are generally off. And, we're, and we can operate with, with success criteria in mind subconsciously and be moving about for the wrong things. So what is the best success criteria for our lives? What should we think about when we think about what life is all about? What's most important? You know, is it entertaining ourselves? Is it uh, fulfilling our own selfish ambition? Or is it even locating our own happiness in the happiness of others that we care about? And if it's not that, then what is it? Well, y'all were all here five minutes ago when the text was read, so you probably know where I'm going. Is that I would say is that the, most, the, the thing that we should care most about in life is what Jesus said is most important, to love God and to love others. That's what we should wake up every day and say, God, help me to do this. Help me love you and help me love others. Here's my, here's my default prayers most days. God, would you make this day easier? Would you make bad things not happen? It's usually some spiritualized version of that. And look, that's not all bad. In some ways I'm saying, I'm just a man. I'm prone to weakness and making a mess of things and things are hard. And so I'm not even saying I shouldn't pray that. I'm just saying a better prayer would be, 
less defensive and more offensive and saying, God, help me to love you and love others on this day. So here's what I want to do with this great commandment, as it's known, to love God and love others. I want to consider it from three different angles. Uh, So first, I want to consider that love is essential. Secondly, that love is law-abiding. And thirdly, that love is God-centered. So first, love is essential. Now, I I should back up and consider what's going on in Mark chapter 12. Uh, This situation that Jesus is in right now is the third of three gotcha questions. Last week, we went over the the, the first one um, where uh, they were asking Jesus about paying taxes. Uh, Then the second was about the resurrection where they said, Hey, so there was the, it was the question brought on by the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. And so they had a question about the resurrection they didn't believe in, trying to set Jesus up for, to, to look stupid. And so they have this situation that, hey, there's a woman. She has seven husbands. They all die in the resurrection. Whose wife will she be? And it's, it's again, it's, it's a gotcha question. Uh, then we have the one today where the scribe, who's this kind of lawyer, this person is really good with the Torah, with the Bible, And they say, which commandment is the most important of all? And this is kind of like saying, who's the greatest basketball player of all? It's kind of designed for disagreement and debate and controversy. And so they're asking this question, what's the most important command? And for the Jews at this time, they had had the law basically boiled down to 613 unique commands. So there's a lot of going back and forth that could happen here. And and this, this same story is in Matthew 22. And when we read it in 22, it says explicitly that the scribes were trying to test Jesus. But the way that Jesus answers this question, he, he actually reframes the question. And he says this in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 29 to 31, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, but he says this. He says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, that the Lord is one, and you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So what he's doing here is reframing the question from what is most important, and instead he's saying, what commandments encompass them all? And rather than saying this one or that one's the most important, and, and it, which implies that others are less important, he just reframes it to say, there's two commandments that all commandments go under. And so he chose the command that carried them all to love God and to love people. And even if you think about the Ten Commandments, the first four are about loving God, and the next six are about loving people. The law is designed to make love tangible. What words are for speaking, God's commands are for loving. God gave his people laws of love, laws to help them love God, laws to help them love each other. And in Matthew 22, Jesus says that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, to love God and to love people. Sometimes when I'm thinking about something like, hey, is this okay or not okay? I think of it more, I think of ethics and morality more in legal terms. Is this inbounds or out of bounds? Rather than just thinking, is this more loving to do? Because according to what Jesus is teaching, I should think less about what is legal is this okay or not okay? And more about what is loving. Is this a loving thing to do or not a loving thing to do? Because being legally right but not loving is a problem. So, so get this. You can be ethically or morally in the right but still be off. And the way you can be ethically or morally 
off, or like right, but still be off, is when it's void of love. And we'll remember this in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul wrote, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So speaking in tongues, prophetic powers, understanding, uh, uh, having understanding and knowledge, having powerful confidence in God and a buttoned up tight theology, having your doctrine all set. All those things are nothing if love is not in the mix. And that Paul says it's like annoying and clanging symbols. So the, the next time after church, we have, we have a kiddo come up and start banging on drums or a cymbal, you should think, behold me, when I'm doing the right thing without love. It's like a clanging cymbal. So if we're going to talk about having a successful life, what makes for a good life? Love is essential. We have to factor in loving God and loving people. Now let's talk a little bit about how we love. So I mentioned that love is law abiding. Uh, turn to Leviticus 19. This is where Jesus, um, uh, he referenced this uh, in his command to love others. So if the law is connected with love, we need to know that in order to love well, we need to abide by the law. And, and when Jesus says that we should love our neighbors, he's quoting from Leviticus 19. And I, I want to read a large portion of this, uh, but it's Leviticus 9 through 18. And just to see how the law is, is mixed together and mingled together with loving others. So Leviticus chapter 9, verse 9 through 18 says this. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather gleanings from after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So when you... Look, when you have a crop, don't take it all yourself. Leave some of the outsides for the poor and the needy. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Not lying is about loving others. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night uh, until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge the poor and defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall, you shall, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall, frankly, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love the na- your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Moses is giving all these commands, and they're all social, social uh, commands of how to interact with people, how to look after the poor. And then at the end, he doesn't add another one, say, love your neighbor as yourself. He's summing up everything he said. It's just to love your neighbor as yourself. And here's where we see people getting this wrong. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus and the disciples are walking 
one day on the Sabbath. And uh, the disciples begin to pluck grains, uh, to, to pluck grains from the field to eat because they're hungry. The Pharisees see it and they say, ha, we caught them. Like they are working on the Sabbath. And Jesus responded by explaining that they were missing the whole idea of the Sabbath. He said the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so somebody with a more liberal view of the scriptures might see this and say, here's here's the takeaway. Jesus is all about love. He's not about the laws. It's all about the love, not the laws. And that's obviously not the case. Jesus was opposed to isolating the law from love. God gave man Sabbath to rest. It's for man. He created it for man not to prevent him from eating when he was hungry. Man was not created for the Sabbath. The law, God's commands are not ends in themselves. They are means to an end. And we see that the the, the end that they're towards is to love God and to love people. And and the union of the law and love corrects both liberals and conservatives. It corrects liberals who might say that that we should just be concerned about love and not about keeping the law. And it corrects conservatives who tend to make a big deal about keeping the law, getting it right, doing it right, staying in bounds, but they don't have love. So it corrects both. Jesus teaches here that the purpose of the law is to love well. And if there is a conflict between what is lawful and what is loving, then there's either a misunderstanding of the law, as it was with the Pharisees, or with what is loving, as we see so often in our day. So if we're going to talk about a successful life, and if the law is designed to help us love well, then we must consider our obedience to God's commands as part of that success criteria for our life. Now, third, let me talk about how love is God-centered. The secret to loving others well is to love God first, and then loving others out of an overflow of our love for God. And, and if you love people well, and for you, if you're thinking, I'm going to love people well because people are so great, then you're not going to love people well for long. Spoiler alert, people aren't that great. <laughs> it can be terribly disappointing, me and you included. Even the best people are going to be unlovable at times. But if you love people well because God is so great, and he is, then you might actually begin to love people well. Now, turn to 1 John chapter 4. Uh, and throughout this letter, we, we see this, these themes come up a lot. But I want to look at a few things in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, first, let's look at uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. It says this, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Loving well begins with God because God is love. Sometimes love can be hard to define, but we get a taste of a definition here because whatever love is, God is it. Love is who he is. So if we're ever going to know what love is really or, or what love does, but it can't come from our idea from a movie or anything else. We need to go and study Yahweh because he is love. Whatever love is, he is it. He is love. Forrest Gump 
famously told Jenny, you might not be a smart man, but that he knows what love is. Not if he doesn't start with God. I don't mean to beat up on Forrest Gump, but he actually, to, to kind of contradict what I just said, in some ways, I, I think he kind of did know what, what love is. If you know the story with Forrest Gump and Jenny, Jenny was a mess. She was, she was broken, um, and Forrest never stopped loving her, and he loved her to the end. And so here's the thing. Forrest Gump isn't like a, a, a Christian movie, but the reason it's so sweet, we're made in the image of God, and we might know the gospel, and when we see it displayed, we can say, that's, that's love. That's it. So the starting point for defining love has got to be God. Now, how does God love? Well, we see how he displayed love in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. It says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And, and what is the application for us understanding who God is and, and what he did for us through sending his son for our punishment? Well, we see it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. So how does God display his love? In sending his son to take the punishment for our sins. If we're going to think about what love is, we have to think about the cross. What does a healthy marriage look like? Something like Jesus and the cross. What does it look like for parents to love their children well? Something like Jesus and the cross. What does it look like for people to love their friends well? Something like Jesus and the cross. What does it look like for people to love those in their church? Something like Jesus and the cross. If we're going to define love, we got to start with God. And how did God display it? It's all at the cross. Now, I want to, I want to do something that I don't like to do. I want to, I'm about to throw out a formula. And, uh, and I usually flinch whenever somebody has a formula for Christianity. Uh, usually it's, it's overly simplistic or, or um, too, too reductive. But anyway, I, I think I, it's as simple as what the scriptures make simple. And so I'm not trying to be cute. I'm just trying to connect some dots that I think connect clearly. So here's what we see. We see Jesus give us the great commandment to love God and love people. So first you need to know the key to loving people. Like I said earlier, it can't be just to, because people are great. People are terribly disappointing. We, sh- we all know this, right? So if we focus on loving people, we're going to fail. So the key to loving people is to love God first. That's not very helpful, is it? Because you're saying like, well, that's my other problem. Like, I don't love people because I don't love God. And I guess since I don't love God, I can't love people. Well, that's not where it ends. Because the key to loving God is knowing God's love for you. In 1 John four nineteen, we see this. We love because he first loved us. And so it spills over. Having our love for God goes to loving others, but it first must begin with knowing God's love for us. Verse 20 says, in 1 John 4, 20, says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does, he who does not love his brother whom he has sent cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the command we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
Look, for, for, for the Christian to love others, hear me say, it doesn't mean you have to be sugary sweet all the time. To love others doesn't mean that you're an extroverted people person. It does mean you have to love people. You must love people if you're a Christian. Not because people are so great, not because you're so great, but because God is so great. And so look, if you don't feel like you don't love people, or you don't feel like you love you don't love God, don't try harder to, to drum up love. Go to God and his love for you made known at the cross. Loving people well depends on you knowing that you are a hopeless sinner who stands helpless in need of grace and having found grace upon grace upon grace and genuinely surprised that, who, the, the, the God that we have would love someone like you. And once you swim in that grace for a while, then you'll be ready to, to, to dispense of some of the love and kindness that's been shown you. Again, not because you're great and not because people are great, but because God is great and his grace, kindness, and love to, towards you was so great that it begins to overflow. So... What should your success criteria be for your life? Here's what it shouldn't be. It shouldn't have much to do with your job, how, how well you're respected in your field or your income. It shouldn't be that you fulfill your ambitions. And it certainly shouldn't be that you entertain yourself. But instead, loving God and showing that love by loving those made in his image, not because they deserve it, but because God is worthy of it. And look, there's a burden that can be released from you in understanding this. We all have different types of ambition that we don't even, aren't even aware of. But often, those, those uh, burdens that we carry, whether it's success or, or family or, or whatever our unique thing of the way we measure success is, it can be a burden. And you know why it's a burden? Is you might not be able to do it. You, you might not be in the right situation. You know, there's some luck that's involved in, in a, a lot of success, um, there's some things that just happen that are kind of outside of your control, and you might or might not have the capacity to be or do what you want to do. And you're going to carry around this burden. There's probably somebody that is what you want to be, and that's going to be this phantom that, that, that is just a reminder of you don't have what it takes, and you're not doing what you ought to be doing. Our God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. What matters is loving God and loving others. And there's a narrow scope to what we have. I, I sometimes flinch at the idea of, hey, go change the world. And it's not that I don't want people to change the world, and certainly great people have ch changed the world and cool. But I think often we can get blinded by that and miss the people that are right in front of us. Miss your husband or your wife or your children. And at work, we get so lost in the work that we forget to love the people that are right there in front of us every day. So may God help us to do this, to love others with a love that begins with loving God first, which begins with knowing God's love for us. And God gave us an example of that love in sending his son to die for sinners, for people we don't like. And let me end with just a few scriptures for us to meditate on. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You did not earn God's affections. You did not earn God's affections. God's affections were set on you. And your unworthiness of those affections highlight God's grace and his love. Let that marinate in your heart for a bit. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. And finally, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. May God help us to see what real success is and to love God and love one another really well. Let's pray. Father, how surprising it is that the affection you have for your people is not based on our performance. Thank you. Our performance is not very good. Even on good days, we are blind to our weaknesses and sins. We are uh, often wooed away from you to other lesser things. But your grace continues more. Your love for us is unchanging because it does not depend on our performance. So help us to understand who you are and the great love with which you love us. And in that, may we love others well. In Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen.